0: We cannot give what we do not have. If I lack love because I'm not filled up with it, I cannot give love to my parishioners. I can give them a smart word, a nice sermon, but I cannot give them the love of God in that sermon unless I am filled with love.
1: Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin-Connor, your host.
2: I'm Abigail Visco-Russert, co-host and co-producer.
3: And I'm Garrett Mastowski, your producer.
2: In this episode, we are talking about self-care and Sabbath. You'll hear the story of Rev. Jamie Eady from Philadelphia and her ministry as a chaplain and death doula. Rev. Jamie reflects on self-care and its role in healing communities and in healing the self. You'll hear from the Rev. Dr. Bo Karen Lee, Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology and Christian Formation, who will deepen our understanding of self-care, Sabbath, and spiritual practices. And you will hear from rising ministry leader, Laura Fairchild, was a recent seminary graduate working as a spiritual
3: director. I am Jamie Eady. I uh, serve in, in a lot of roles. Um, I sort of cap it by saying I'm a healer, right? I'm a healer. I serve um, in Philadelphia primarily. That's where I live. I am a chaplain. I am a death doula. I am um a minister of congregational wellness at a local Baptist church in Philadelphia as well. Um, I serve as what we call a protest or a movement chaplain. So I serve the community that is protesting and marching and shutting things down. I'm serving um, that community as well as needed. Um, I serve in hospice settings. So I, I consider myself just that healer, that um, that person who comes alongside people through trauma, through grief, through loss. Um, And that that's who I am. However, I can occupy that space.
1: All of us were pretty struck with the the idea of a death doula. Um, And I know on your on your website, you say loss navigation specialist, which, again, it's just really intriguing. Tell us about your role as a death doula. Like, who is a death doula? And how did you come to this work?
3: So let's go back. Right. I, ne- I, I turn 44 next week. Right. So I'm going to go back about 40 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? happy oh, birthday. birthday.
1: 40 years. Yeah. 40
3: I'm going to go old. back about 40 years. So, um, this is the first death that I experienced and I wasn't afraid. I wasn't, um, it wasn't scary. It wasn't, I was calm. There was a peace. And uh, the family thought it was unusual, like why is she in this space in this way? Um, And no one understood it. I didn't understand it. Um, And so that was the beginning of it, of being able to be in this space and tell the adults around me, it's okay. You know, getting tissue, holding hands. And by the way, this voice I have, I've had since I could talk. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is both funny and scary and soothing at the same time. Yeah. Um, so a, a four or five year old saying it's OK in this voice. Right. right. Um, and so being that young and able to stand in that space, um, knowing I'm I'm supposed to be in the space. Like I'm okay. Like you okay, you can go in that room because you shouldn't be in this space. But I'm okay in this space. That's when it started. Uh and then as I got older, having dreams, and I know some people are like, Oh, having dreams. Yes, having dreams when uh people were nearing the end of their life and being able to be present with them and helping them find meaning and reconcile relationships and just finding myself in these spaces with people as they neared the end of life, as a teenager, as a young adult, and beginning to say, oh, this is calling me to this work. I don't really know what this work is, but I'm supposed to be in this work. Um, A lot of death doulas that I started to meet as I got older were not necessarily attached to a particular faith, right? Um, and I identified as a Christian woman. And so um, being able to find a way to stand in that space as a Christian woman was you know, a little difficult because the church felt like, oh, these are things that we can do. We can walk with people at the end of life. And yes, I get it. Pastors can, um, but there's some work that I do that um, it doesn't need to be on the pastor's plate, right? Um, I sit with people um, at the end of life and I'm holding hands as people take their last breaths. Now, I'm not saying a pastor can't do that, but I'm saying that not every pastor does. And I'm saying that pastors have congregations and they have a lot of weight on them and they can't do that for every person in their congregation. And they need people who can come alongside them and do that. And so as a death doula, what do I do? That's part of it, right? I journey with people as they near the end of life, uh, helping them to find meaning out of their life, helping them to possibly reconcile relationships. It's not always possible, especially if I meet someone who um, is, it's Friday and, they transition on Sunday. There's not much I can do between Friday and Sunday. Um, uh, But there are people who receive a diagnosis in January, and I may have until November with them, and there's a lot of work that we can do with them and their family. Um, And so what do we do? We create a plan together, and this plan could include um, rituals, So what do you want the end of your life to look like? Um, Do you want to celebrate something? Um, And sometimes the person is alone. Sometimes the person is that person who comes to a church, but no one in the church knows that they're there. And they get a word and they are sick. And no one in the church notices that they go missing. And so they call me. And I spend the last month of their life with them mm-hmm. and they talk to me about the love that they wish that they had and uh, the job that they didn't excel on or that they did excel on and how they wish to be cremated and, and um, how they want to write a letter to their best friend that they argued with um, when they left home at 18. Like I might be that person. Uh, that they do that work with because they have no one. Um, So those are some of the things that I do um, with families. I say, as a death doula, I am one who comes alongside. I am one who enters in. I am one who sometimes guides. I am one who sometimes cheers. I am one who always attends with empathy and compassion as you move from this place you are in to the next place, whatever that next place is for you. Some people believe in an afterlife, but not everyone does, but I am going to walk you to the door of wherever you are going. So that's my role as death doula.
2: Jamie, that's so beautiful. Um, And I can, I can hear (laughs) and Mm -hmm. really um, resonate with the amount of need that all people, but, you know, especially one of the people we think about in this podcast is pastors. Um, Just how much pastors need you, (laughs) someone like you, you know, every, everybody needs, um, everybody needs a death tool, I think. Um, Every congregation, every community. And you know, I, I have one one question and then maybe a follow-up after that, but how does death care relate to self-care? Um, so that's question number one. And then after that, I'd love to, you know, kind of hear more about what a death doula like, what have you been up to in the midst of this pandemic? <laughs> How do we have death doulas yeah. in, a, in the moment of yeah. you know, physical distancing? So what does that important. look like for yeah. you? So, yeah. but, but first that self-care, you know, death care and self-care piece.
3: You know, that that's the death care and self-care that it's so, so difficult for me. Right. Because, um, with death, there is trauma.
2: Hmm.
3: um, and i i think there is um there is a privilege to self care
2: mm.
3: that not everyone has access to there are some families that uh, i get to work with and we get to do preparation work so that when they get toward end of life there are some things that they are able to take care of so that those who remain don't have this work to do Mm. so that they are able to grieve. Mm -hmm. They are able to enter into their grief and, and being able to grieve is a part of your self-care, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to actually grieve is part of self-care, not having to um, sort of put your grief aside to do work Mm -hmm. is part of self-care. There are communities that don't have that luxury,
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Because they have work to do um, when death occurs. Or there is ambiguity surrounding the death in that um, the cause, there there are no answers with mm. death, right? So death has occurred and I either don't know why, don't know who, um, and so I live with that. And that impacts my grief, thus impacting my ability to care for myself. Um, and so I'm always torn with death care and self care. Um, but here's, here's what I recommend um, to people. Those who are, two things, those who are caring for those who are dying. There is work that we must do for ourselves. And that work includes being able to step away from the work. Um, And I find that for pastors, that is very difficult to do. Amen. Uh, And... While it's difficult to do, it is a necessity, and I am challenging pastors to dig deep to figure out why it's difficult to do, because I see that we care about people, so I know that our love and desire to care for people is part of what drives us, but I also think there's another part that drives us, which is ego. So I think both are driving us that it's care for people and ego. Mm -hmm. And I think the combination are going to kill us. Mm -hmm. And so death care, while we are caring for those who are dying, while we are caring for the people, um, if we don't take a step back to care for ourselves, and I'm talking about more than just manicures and massages, if we don't take a step back to care for ourselves
2: um,
3: that we are going to be continuously wounded in the process. And I mean, deeply wounded for those who are in, in that death and dying process. I think that there are things that we can do to care for them in a way um, that invites them when, when they are able uh, to engage in practices of self-care as well. And that is both spiritual and physical, and that deals with reflection, and um, whether it's prayer or reflection um, or meaning-making, I think all of those are self-care practices that we can engage in. Um, And and again, the reflection piece, Mm -hmm. when you have work, it's hard to reflect when you are working. That's why I'm always so torn. That, that's why I think there are people who, who it's hard to do self care. It takes time to step up, to step away from and to reflect and to sit still and to engage in peace in the body. You can't do that and work. You can't.
2: Mm-mm.
3: And for people who are, have to work, how, how, how do I, how do I, and I think it's privilege. And so we have to address, I know this is not that right. We got to address a system that yeah. that does not allow for self-care, a system that, that continuously calls for the putting at risk of body, mind, and spirit. And so part of self-care is sort of dismantling a system that continuously um, seeks to destroy the self.
1: Jamie, earlier you said something about um, responding as a death doula, as a pastor would need you, or situations where the pastor would need you. Can you walk us through? Let's, like, for example, I'm a pastor that really needs help with a congregant who is, you know, in the last. Um, I don't actually, I don't want to set the example for you. I'm a pastor who needs yes. a death doula to help with a yes. parishioner. You, you give, you fill in the blank. What is that process, um, that happens when that pastor calls you to do this work and has a specific parishioner in mind? And if you have a specific example, like during COVID, cause I'm imagining like this yeah. practice, like a pastor, the worry of just like the well, there's the mental health worry going on here, but then there's like, actually physically, how are we, how are you in touch as a death doula if someone has COVID or if, right. you know, what are, what does that look
3: like? Yeah. The, the fact that I, I haven't stopped working because I mm-hmm. work in a hospital. I yeah. have served COVID patients throughout this, yeah. the entirety of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that pastors knew that every day I was working and it, they felt comfortable like, hey, if I have a family member who you know, who, who has a virus, are, are you able to help me in any way? They, they knew I was likely going to say, sure, let's figure out how we can do this, um, because they knew I was in the environment already. Um, so let's do hospital setting first. Okay. So hospital setting, um, they would allow us to enter into spaces if we were comfortable, the hospital said, as a chaplain, we are not going to force you into a a patient, a positive patient's room. You can tell us you can stand at the door or not. It's up to you. You can go in the room, you can stand at the door or or not. I said, I will go into the room. Give me the equipment, I will go into the room. So I would go into patients' rooms um, and visit with positive patients. What that meant for them was families could not come into the hospital. So I had my iPhone, my iPad, and I would do FaceTime and Zoom visits. Now, I got to tell you, I I love technology, but p- one of the things that I do is, as, as a chaplain, as a death doula, part of my job is to be close to people, is to actually be physically close to people. And mm-hmm to be close to the person in the bed, even though I'm in the room with you, I wasn't supposed to be that close to the bed. I can be in the room, but not up on the bed. So to be in the room and to have a family on the phone, it wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could see the distance, you could see in the family's face that something was missing. So I now have to figure out ways to help families develop a ritual that would um, give them some kind of meaning in that space that would fulfill what might be fulfilled by being able to touch the person that you love, and I have to tell you, I don't know if I was always successful I don't I don't know um, mm-hmm. i I know one I can tell you one time when I felt I did well, like that day, I walked away and said, "We did good today mm-hmm.
2: um,
3: there was a family, the, the mother was in the hospital and through conversations with the family, they told me she was a chef, that she, she cooked, they, you know, they, big mama could cook, she cooked every day, she <laughs> cooked, she cooked, cooked, like that was all she said, yeah. she cooked and they said she wrote her recipes out on what used to, It looked like an old, um, like a phone, something you put phone numbers in. I hate that. I, I can't think of what it's called. But, um, but they took it. Her oldest son took it, and he had his son um, type the recipes up,
4: mm. but mm.
3: also take the little card that they were written on and sort of plant it on the paper. And he took that and made books for all of, there were four of the children. Hmm. So they each got a, basically a cookbook of the, the mother's cookbook. So on a zoom call, I facilitated a zoom call with them and sort of thought through this before they did that Facilitated the zoom call. And they talked about her cooking. And I said, well, why don't you all um, uh, maybe cook a dish? So that's when they got, we got the idea of typing the recipes out, putting them together in a the book. They got a zoom call together. Each of them, picked a dish that they were going to cook. Now they did this on the Zoom, right? Because you can record a Zoom. So the four of them are on the Zoom. They're looking through the book. And I said, have discussion about, go through the book together. Talk about the recipes. Talk about what you remember when you ate the meal and favorite times. And and so Mm. they're, they're doing this and laughing and talking about when they ate it as they each pick the dish that they're going to make. And so they each make a separate dish. They make their dishes. The oldest brother goes to each of the siblings' house because they separate the dishes into fours. They don't eat any of the dishes that night. They wait till Sunday. That that might've been a Friday night. They wait till Sunday. Now they all have the same meal. They Zoom again, Mm -hmm. they have dinner together. Mm. But they all have the same meal now, so mac and cheese and some vegetable and whatever else the rest of the meal was. but they got to eat the dishes that they prepared um and and got to compare and talk about who did well and and mm. and that that was the one time that I said this was this was good it didn't substitute it wasn't a a, a full substitute for being able to touch mom, but they were able to create a memory together that, um, that, that was lasting, that was meaningful, but I don't know that I'm doing that with every family because Mm -hmm. it's hard. So when pastors call me, those are the types of things we talk about. Um, what can we do? Let's, let's get the family together, um, over a zoom and let's just talk because it's in the family talking that I'm listening for things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because ideally, it's all about them. So what are they saying to us? Our job is 90% listening. What are they saying to us? And how can we capture those things? Uh, And so I do um, sessions with pastors. I consult with pastors. And we talk about what does it mean to listen? And pastor's like, oh, I listen, I listen. No, no. What does it mean to listen? I don't mean listening to respond. I mean, listening um, to be vulnerable, one, because you don't know what they're going to say and how that's going to uh, bring up some of your own issues. Listening to be available, um, not to be thinking about, one, how you can respond and how you can find a Bible verse that can answer their question. I mean, actually just listening, listening um, with empathy, like listening, listening. What does it mean to actually be there? And listen.
2: Reverend Edie helps pastors pursue and remember the practice of listening. Listening for the sake of listening, not for the sake of responding. And we began to wonder about listening in our own lives as pastors. If Reverend Edie is right, and part of self care is the act of dismantling a system that continuously seeks to destroy the self, how are we self caring? Who is listening to our lives? Are we listening to our
0: own lives? My name's Bo Karen Lee, um, and I teach at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm the uh, Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology and Christian Formation, and I teach classes um, in spirituality, um, as well as classes in mission that are related to the integration of spirituality with our call in the world, um, different kinds of mission, mission defined very broadly, those who are sent by God into the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, but I focus on classes on contemplative listening and other varieties of practices that help, uh, future pastors connect deeply uh, to the well of life that comes from the God that they serve.
1: Taking that further, tell us, a little bit more about your work in spiritual direction and self-care.
0: Sure. So um, I did develop a series of courses in contemplative listening related specifically to the art of spiritual companioning. And so these courses will help students companion others in the ministry of spiritual listening. Um, But before a seminarian or a pastor can accompany others they need to have a very vibrant sense of being accompanied by the spirit being supported and sustained by the spirit as well as their community and so in that particular class we teach them listening skills among among themselves and we bring in experienced peer group leaders to sort of model what deep listening for the spirit together might look like Um, And so I would say all of my classes, even though they're preparing students for ministry, they are helping students connect to uh, the wellsprings of life that keep them rooted in their own belovedness, their own identity in Christ and their own walk with the spirit so that they don't burn out as they try to serve others. Um, so I teach a variety of classes just in spirituality, like rhythms of prayer in the Christian tradition, looking at Benedictine spirituality, or classes on um, practicing the presence of God, inspired by Brother Lawrence. How do you bring the presence of God into all of our life, from doing the dishes, to studying, to preaching a sermon, to visiting a parishioner at the hospital, um, then I teach classes in Ignatian spirituality because he's very strong in helping us honor our imaginations, our, uh, our spiritual eyesight as we interact with God's love and God's word. Um, I also do teach classes in forgiveness and reconciliation, as well as some philosophy classes. Um, one is called the face of the other, and it helps us to confront the reality that we have a very hard time loving our neighbors when they show up with what Ivan Karamazov calls, you know, I can love humanity, but when they show up, when my neighbor shows up with their smelly, stupid face, all love is gone. Mm -hmm. So I can love humanity as a principle, but how do I love on the ground when loving becomes so painful because my neighbors are hurtful or dismissive or um, so many things that transgress my own humanity? So how do I continue to love in the face of pain and injustice? And, and the course basically concludes cl- with um, the importance of proper self-love mm-hmm. and how to cultivate that in order to be very effective and free in neighbor love. And um, the only way for that cycle to continue in a free-flowing fashion Is if I am continuously receiving love, then I can love myself and love my neighbor. So that whole cycle plays out in that particular course, and um, I think it's true in ministries of spiritual direction. I can't be a kind, compassionate, empathetic presence to another if I'm not deeply grounded in being supported and loved and honored in my dignity, in my identity. So I think my classes by and large focus on helping students find that grounding in their, in their creator. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's you, know, you gave me so many places <laughs> to follow up, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I'm immediately struck by um, contemplative listening in this moment. And I, I'll jump to this now. Cause I think you are headed there anyway, because I think part of what we've, what we've talked about professor is, the, the racial awakening or awakening or reckoning or however you want to call it, the, the pandemics that we're in, the mm-hmm. the racial pandemic, the COVID. And mm-hmm. you just, you you talked about this listening and listening when it's really hard and listening when it, you know, it's the neighbor with the, that you, you know, are annoyed by or, or worse, you know, um, is denying your humanity. How do you, how do we do contemplative listening? How do we do that in this moment? Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. I think there are many voices screaming at us, telling us who we are. Many of those voices are violent. And then there are many voices telling us who we should be. So uh, there's pressure from so many different quarters. Uh, you are this. You need to be this. You ought to be that. You're not good enough. You need to be doing this. Even the best of Christian ministers feel so much pressure from parishioners or from fellow pastors on the kind of pastor I should be. In this particular class in contemplative listening, it's interesting because this fall I'm going to bridge it, hopefully, uh, very specifically with our international and national moment of. Of of great crisis, and, and ask what voices are we really listening to? Maybe I'm listening to my own voice, my voice of anger, shame, disappointment, betrayal, having been belittled, or maybe I'm uh, ashamed of my privilege, or maybe I'm, I'm guilted into using my privilege for this or that. Like, where is the most authentic voice going to come from? And there's there's this deep, authentic voice within each of us. Howard Thurman calls it that inner island of authority where you listen deep to your own soul, deep calls to deep, and you know what your deepest self is drawing out in you. But as Howard Thurman also knew, for him, that deep voice comes in silent stillness, and solitude when we listen to the voice of another and that's when the voice becomes so clear, the voice that tells me the beloved truth of who I am, that I am the beloved child of God. And so one image that comes to mind now is you know, when Jesus is baptized in the river, before he begins his ministry, before he performs a single act of justice or breaking societal. Uh, oppressions um before he does any work of ministry or healing or preaching or compassion or 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 service he hears a voice from heaven telling him you know the heavens part and the voice declares over christ this is my beloved my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and i am so confident that if we don't hear that voice over our lives on a regular basis then we will be parasitic upon other voices to tell us who i am oh i don't know my own dignity unless you honor me i don't know my own dignity unless these people respect me oh i don't know my gifts as a pastor unless my parishioners say great sermon pastor i don't know my value if my elder board doesn't Congratulate me on this mm-hmm. or that. And so, how can I bear the grind of ministry when things are rough, when the sheep are unwieldy, if I depend on them for their voices to tell me how I'm doing or who I am? There's got to be another voice that rings clearer than all the other voices swirling through my own head. And how do I distinguish God's voice? How do I distinguish the deepest voice within me telling me who I am and what I've been called to? And what I've been called for, why have I been called? Who am I and what do I have to offer? And so there are a variety of ways that we can listen for this voice of God. And so students will gravitate toward this or that path of listening. But because this is a, um, an institution that believes in the divine what we're looking for is a very specific <laughs> voice, a very specific word from a very specific person. Not just the force, not just this random the force be with you, but a very specific voice that comes from a person who has a very distinct personality and who has very specific thoughts toward me and very specific hopes for my life, dreams and hopes for my life. Um, all beautiful ones, not pressure filled ones. So And and I think many of us have heard what we imagine to be the voice of God through various religious leaders. And then this voice comes sometimes in a very harsh, strident, judging tone. So then the voice I imagine to be God versus the voice of love, there's a lot of layering to the voice that I think Mm -hmm. comes from God. And so I didn't mention this, but some of the classes I teach actually have to do with the transforming and the healing of the voices we hear and of our own narrative. The story I tell myself about who I am Mm -hmm. and what voices define and shape me. How do I heal my own internal narrative of my life? And how do I um, receive healing for the distorted perceptions and views that I have Of who God is, because fundamentally, is God love? Hmm. And if that's not the voice I'm hearing, then there's something distorted and probably broken because of a painful experience I've had in the past. And then I tape that onto God. That's the lens with which I view God. So a lot of uh, these classes also have to do with the healing of the false voices we we allow ourselves to hear. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And it it brings me to, is a great way to, to ask you about, so can you tell us, define what, what is Mm self-care and, and how is self-care then theological?
0: Yeah. (sighs) There's that famous passage in the gospels where Jesus is serving with the disciples They're busy, they're tired. And he says, come away with me and rest for a while. Mm. And self-care is not a term you'll find in scripture. However, there are so many images in scripture that point to the abundance of living in Christ. And by abundance, I mean spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, communal, personal abundance. This, this this abundance of being sated like my hunger my desires are sated so let's say I want to serve other people or feed other people let's say I'm a chef in the in the kitchen and I'm cooking a meal for all these people that's how we can imagine ministry to be I'm providing a meal for all these people mm-hmm. but the chef must eat <laughs> right the chef must eat and self-care is theological in that it is modeled to us in Christ himself who frequently went away to be nourished by his own heavenly father. Mm -hmm. Even before starting his ministry, he, he would go away before he called the disciples. Why did he go away for 40 days before starting his ministry? Why did the spirit lead him into a wilderness of intense preparation and fasting? How can that be self-care? He's preparing himself for the hard work ahead of him. And we cannot give what we do not have. Mm -hmm. If I lack love because I'm not filled up with it, I cannot give love to my parishioners. I can give them a smart word, a nice sermon, But I cannot give them the love of God in that sermon unless I am filled with love. And so I think self care is more about just honoring the communion that God intends me to have, to fill my life with strength, with love, with the fruit of the Spirit, so that my ministry flows out of being filled rather than struggling and straining out of some kind of deficit. If I keep serving on a deficit, That leads to resentment, burnout, anger, Mm -hmm. and disastrous um, relational conflict and Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. of unnecessary pains. I think it's theological in that God never intended us to serve and give that which we do not have. You get that in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me. I think self care is simply a way of honoring the invitation to abide in the love of Christ and Mm -hmm. for all of our work to come from that chief vine, Mm -hmm. my source, to be connected to my source. So if I'm not abiding, if I'm not honoring the invitation from God to commune and sit at table and feast and be fed, I am confident that our pastors will. Burnout. It's just a matter of time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And you're you're making me think of um,
1: the kind the burnout, the justice fatigue, the um, kind of one of our um, interviewees. She she mentioned. The kind of the privilege of self-care and the privilege of work to, to take care of yourself um, and also just the lack mm-hmm. of time to do it. So both of those kind of at the same time, yes. she yes. is a mm-hmm. death doula. Mm. And wow. she shared with us, cause she's working in ministry in Philadelphia, but also working as a hospital chaplain. And so she's, mm-hmm. when we're thinking about audience, she, she's an interviewee, but she's also your audience. Like, what are the ways that, um a, a clergy woman like that can self preserve can do the work yeah. of ministry and yet still honor that invitation that you're talking about to just sort of abide be connected to the source how do you do that
0: yeah so let me ask a follow up question is the sure um, there are different contexts so let's say a single mother with four children how does she take mm-hmm. care of herself or right a pastor on the front lines who is, you know, constantly with, with surrounded by violence, death and dying and illness. And so how do we create margin around our lives? Um, I think this is connected to Sabbath. Um, yes. Yeah. The, the huge error that I have made in the past, and that I think many well-meaning religious leaders make is that we think We actually think that something depends on us. Mm. Mm. If I don't do my work, then that problem won't be fixed. If I don't do my work, then no one will take care of that. If I don't do my work, then no one will be served. And we're not allowing God to raise up someone else to do that or to do it in some other means that we might not have imagined. We think it's irresponsible and faithless to stop from our work Mm-hmm. But I think God gave us the gift of Sabbath to remind us we're not in charge. I am not, I am not the savior. I am not the savior. And we could know it theologically and yet existentially not buy into that. We think that faithfulness means never stopping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But faithfulness, I think, requires us to eat a proper meal. No one can fast forever. We will die if we keep fasting. And I think working without receiving sustenance from that divine voice, from that divine feast, working without feasting, feeding, filling, will lead to detrimental depletion. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Let, okay, so let's say I'm a, a busy mother of four. How, how do I do it? In some circumstances, it is just, it, it feels impossible right. to take care of myself. And I I can only give the example of Mother Teresa right now, who, mm-hmm. who poured out her entire life to serve the hurting and the dying. But she forbade her sisters from going out until they had experienced the Eucharist in the morning, fed on the blood and body of Christ, and had an hour of silence and mm-hmm. solitude. Mm-hmm. She forbade the work until the the sister experienced that hour of silence. And even Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. who did amazing work um, in, after, well, the Truth Reconciliation Commission mm-hmm. um, you know, they were trying to heal after apartheid and they were really torn over. How do we uh, grant amnesty? Uh, upon what conditions do we grant amnesty? And the, the commission itself couldn't agree on how to grant amnesty. And there was this one newspaper article that declared, Is this the end of the TRC? <laughs> mm-hmm. So the peacemaking body couldn't mm-hmm. even find peace among themselves. Mm-hmm. So Desmond Tutu said, Okay, we stop our work. We, on Christmas vacation, we go to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. We look at his prison site. We reflect on all that happened, but we take 24 hours of silence and nothing but listening to God. You're allowed to do nothing but listen. They walked around. My my Presbyterian uh, colleague who was a part of that commission said, as a good you know Presbyterian, mm-hmm. I was very restless with silence because I like to cram <laughs> my head with words. Right, right. And, then, um, but, but they did what Desmond Tutu asked them to do. And after 24 hours, they came back together and Desmond Tutu just asked, so what did you hear in the silence? What did you receive? What did you hear? What did you receive? And the people shared. And then within a record amount of time, they came to a unanimous decision on how to navigate this very tricky terrain. So that's how he did that in his service. In his own personal life, he took an hour Where he refused conversations, phone calls, work, or business. And it was Mm -hmm. just for his time with God. So, you asked a great question in the email. You know, what's the difference between self care and Sabbath? Mm -hmm. That was my,
1: (laughs) you're good. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Follow up. Because certainly if Desmond Tutu can have an hour of self care or, you know, a moment in the day, we all can. But yeah, that was Mm -hmm. my follow up. How,
0: please. Yeah, I think Sabbath is one subset of self-care. Mm-hmm. It's like a Venn diagram. There's also an, an intersection where self-care is one. Well, all of Sabbath can be self-care, but, self, but Sabbath can include other people care. Sabbath can include you know, all sorts of things. A lot of writers on Sabbath speak about how not only is it a time of rest, but it's a time of play, recreation, delight, marvel you know, wondering at the beauty of creation around you, whatever causes you to wonder, to delight, to marvel, that feeds the soul. So if it's playing Scrabble with with good friends or if it's going kayaking on the the lake, what feeds our soul? And so I do think Sabbath is a subset of self-care by and large. And I think self-care can also mean allowing myself to be with friends who will care for me there's also a difference between self-care and receiving care. Mm -hmm. This is very hard for ministry leaders to do. I can say, all right, self-care, self-care. I need to care for myself. But what does it mean to humble myself and say, Oh my goodness, I need to receive some love and care from another human being. And so to, to open my heart and my, in my pain to a trusted friend or a trusted spiritual companion or a counselor or someone who's trained in helping. Preferably I would also have a number of very close friends who would be able to take turns caring for one another, for, for me. Every ministry leader needs that. Um, the body of Christ, who in the body of Christ can I go to? So self care i think is distinct from receiving care but receiving care again is a subset of self care
1: as you think about um and again and when i say this moment i'm talking about the various moments of the the pandemic and the, and the race reckoning and and as you think about pastors in this moment um yourself included if if you think about what what or where where is god in this moment what are we What are we to take of this moment? What are the, what's to be learned uh, in this moment of crisis, but also of some deep joys. You've created joys in this year. You know, we, we, I think this is an act of preservation that people are doing is doing things like community listening, spending more time with their kids, resetting their lives because you know what, we're, our lives depend on it. So what Mm -hmm. are, what are. Where is God?
0: It's a beautiful question. I think in many ways, many of us feel that God is absent or God is aloof or uncaring. Um, but the God that I've come to know
1: mm-hmm.
0: is one who grieves with us, who, who weeps with us. There's this, this great mystery. Why does God tolerate this? Why does God allow this? There's a great mystery. I will say just yesterday, a friend reminded me uh, of the crucified God. God is hanging on a cross, Mm -hmm. suffering suffering with us. And all the pain that we experience in this age, whether it's the loss of a loved one due to COVID-19, whether it's racial violence, Whether it's the pain of depression and anxiety and loneliness in this space of isolation. To think that Christ bore that pain with me. There are many different theologies of the atonement. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? But one that I've come to understand and embrace and love more deeply in recent years is the theology of solidarity, Christ standing with us in solidarity with us. And um, James Cohn writes about that in, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, but he talks about how um, in the black church, the theology of solidarity was so important because they needed to know in the civil rights movement and in all forms of injustice, the black church needed to know that Christ is not only not absent, Mm -hmm. but Christ is suffering with us, Mm -hmm. bearing that cross. It's this cosmic event that somehow demonstrates God's solidarity with us. And so... I have felt God's absence numerous times. We have to go through Good Friday, Holy Saturday to ever get to Easter. But I would pray for the grace to receive that cry of dereliction, to hear it from Christ, to to have our abandonment, our pain, our sorrow shared by Christ, absorbed into Christ, shielded, uh, from our lives in a way, like, yes, we feel the pain, but Christ says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and let me give you rest. What does it mean? You know, take my yoke upon you, exchange our yoke, give me your heavy yoke and take my yoke of lightness. What does it mean to to physically, literally, spiritually give my burden to the one who bears it all upon this historical, cosmic cross, and and to know that Christ carries it. This is where I'm finding Christ these days, in, in the crucified God. We wanted
2: to find a ministry leader on the ground who was taking some of this insight and applying it, not only to their work and their ministry context, but in their life. My
4: name is Laura Fairchild. I live in Burlington, New Jersey, and I'm a spiritual director and self-love advocate.
1: Can you tell us what what does that mean? What do you mean by those those titles? What t- talk to me about your passion for spiritual direction and self care? So
4: spiritual direction is the provision of attentive, hospitable, and non judgmental presence uh, in order to deepen one's sense of the divine. Mm. I see it as. Uh, sacred conversation and spiritual support uh, for anyone who is navigating this human experience. I discovered the language of spiritual direction at PTS uh, through Dr. Bo Karen Lee and just was immediately attracted to this theme of companionship, this theme of uh, discernment and clarity in hearing God. But my, my passion for spiritual direction really comes uh, from self-discovery uh, in that I have a passion to partner with people. Um, and I feel that God has really created me in such a way, uh, created my heart in such a way that it longs to, to know and to let people know that they're not alone. Mm. Um, and many people, you know, often will will talk of this this grief of being present with others, but still, you know, are somehow alone and unseen. Mm. And so I feel, you know, spiritual direction is a way, you know, to affirm um, and to allow people to feel less alone. Um, And it is a means in my perspective, it is a means of self care for the soul.
2: I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you think the difference between self care and self love
4: Mm. is. Oh, that is a great question. i I see self-love as like the um, affirmation and self-care as the act. Mm. So self-love is this space where, you know I accept myself you know fully and completely, the parts of me um, that are vulnerable, the parts of me that are stronger. Um, it is where I embrace myself. Um, and accept myself, and then self care is that is acting upon or acting in accordance with that love and care and acceptance of self. To say, I deserve rest, I deserve, you know, to recover. I deserve, you know, uh, peace. Uh, and so it's it's really self love is really the affirmation that fuels the act of self care.
2: Hmm. Mm. There's a, a story we heard in, you know, we're talking a lot about self-care in this episode. And there's a story that um we were told from another one of our, really our storyteller for the episode, her name's Jamie Edie, And um she told us this story of functioning in a hospital chaplaincy setting and role. Yeah. And we're thinking about the ways in which Right now, during COVID-19, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are in need of things like self-care. And I would say now, after even just hearing that, you know, speaking with you briefly, self-love um, and this compounded grief that we're dealing with mm. in this moment. And I'm curious, um, I'm, another theme that came up is Sabbath. Mm. So I'm curious about how that idea you know, interplays with the work you do around self-care and self-love.
4: Yeah. I mean, Sabbath is such a powerful, a powerful theme, a powerful word. Um, and it really is accepting that you need a break and that you can take a break and that, you know, we're, we're ministering um infinitude. So it's, mm. there, there is a, a need for that recovery and nourishment. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, served as a hospital chaplain uh, during the outbreak of the pandemic. And even prior to that, I had a, an awareness that, you know, my, my self-care practices were not in balance with what I was sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Um and so Sabbath really acknowledges uh, the importance of the work that is being done, um, and and knowing you know where I begin and end um, is important uh, for the mm. quality of the work. Um, and so if I'm taking care of myself, if I'm if I'm taking a Sabbath, if I am you know allowing myself you know to acknowledge it's not all on me. Like the whole burden of everything and of life, I don't have to carry that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My, I, I must do my best and then mm-hmm. I must take a rest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, yeah. As you think about, um, so your own kind of self-care as a chaplain and as a faith leader and in, in considering others, cler- like Ministry involves, the vocational work of ministry, I should say, involves pretty much a 24-7 cycle. Like, that's how it feels. That's how it works out. So normally, that's the case. Mm -hmm. In a COVID pandemic moment, it is doubly so for people. So how do you or how would you encourage your fellow clergy persons to take Sabbath? to recognize mm. that, you know what? I know I get it. It is 24 seven. It is so busy. You can't say no congregate, no, you know, patient. I I'm taking time for self-care. You, it feels like you can't say that, but wh- right. how, how do you say that? How do you do that? And how do you make sure that people understand how important that is as a faith leader? I
4: would say, you know, it's, it's important to tag other people in mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. those moments when it's like you're feeling overwhelmed. Cause I mean, what are you going to have to give anyway? So even if I did say yes, you know, I am, I'm giving out of a place that is malnourished and, and wounded. Um, and that's problematic. Um, I think, you know, self-care for, for people in helping professions is a matter of ethics um, so mm. the, the quality of my care um, hinges upon how well I'm able to show up. So if I have not cared for myself and enter uh, into a conversation with someone where they say something triggering, my ability to maintain presence is compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so it's going to be important for me to be really rooted and grounded Um so that when I show up, you know, should something triggering happen or or things, you know, they, a lot of emotions are being stirred up, I can be that anchor in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's it's really, you know, a matter of of ethics um, and the quality of care. You know, is is really it deteriorates, you know, if you're deteriorated, if that
1: makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, of the not so unique um, oxygen mask metaphor, mm-hmm. right? You, you're mm. Taking care of your, you know, you, you put on yours first before you can help others. Yeah, it makes, it, it makes, it's true. It, it's actually really true. Um, Laura, talk to me about how this year, like, so you've just recently graduated um, from seminary. You're early in your career, and a pandemic hits, right? <laughs> and so, what what has this year been like? What are you I know, right? <laughs> what, what have you been thinking about this year? It's just how, like,
4: how's that going?
1: How Woo! is this going? <laughs> exactly.
4: It's really been a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I'm in the middle of like a novel, um, <laughs> or like the day uh, my sister's favorite movie, The Day After Tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just yeah. like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. <laughs> right.
1: right. Right. And I'm
4: okay. just, you know, I'm looking for something to to hold on to. Mm. Um, and what I have felt called to, you know, is this work of of self-love um, and self-care is this work of um, tending to my own parts that are wounded and, and weary and just, just, just this, this thought of being, right, the importance of being, and not so much mm. doing. Um, yes, I, I think within our own culture we prioritize like the the work over the worker, mm-hmm. um, and that is very that's backwards to me. Um, and I felt that pressure of just like I have to perform. I have to accomplish tasks. I have to have all these things, you know, uh, all these titles and certificates and I have to achieve, achieve, achieve. Um, and it's so, I was so tired Uh, after, uh, chaplaincy, I was just so tired. And I, I, I was like, okay, God, like I have to do things. I have to, um, I don't know if y'all remember that particular tweet that went viral. Where the guy was like, Oh, like if you don't come out of quarantine with like a side hustle and you know two jobs or whatever, then it wasn't a lack of time, it was like a discipline or something. (laughs) And I'm just like who says that? (laughs) Like who says that? It's like someone gets kidnapped and you're like, oh, while you're down there in that dungeon, you just gotta you gotta grow a beautiful immaculate garden. And like if you don't come out of this, you know, with something to show for it, you know what? I, I I didn't, and, I, and I, I felt pressure from that of like, okay, I have to dig deep and like, you know, produce something. But when I think about um, actual produce, like an actual fruit, that's the last thing that grows like from the tree. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there is a lot of care and a lot of nurturing that has to go into growing a plant before it can produce anything. And so in my mind, I was like, OK, if I want to get to producing something, you know, it has to start with with my own inner work and my own inner healing and my own rootedness.
2: So that that's actually a good jumping off point to ask, um, you know, how is how is self-care theological? And I think you're taking us down that path.
4: yeah. So I right now I'm defining self-care as unapologetic centering of the self through acts of freedom that bring delight and nourishment. Mm. That that is how I'm uh defining self-care and I get that definition from scripture. Mm. Um mm. God put people in the garden to work, but first commands freedom and satisfaction. Mm. Right in in Genesis 2.16, God commands, right? You are free, you know, to eat of this garden. You may freely eat. And so in that, you may, I start, I start reading right there, and I just (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you may is a divine permission slip. Mm -hmm. And so I'm taking that as seriously as possible and have really been pondering, like, what does that mean? Right, this this command to to freedom. I feel that there is, you know, a subtle implication, at least to me, right, that the self is prioritized over and above the plan, um, that the enjoyment of the person is prioritized over and above the task, and that the the fulfillment of the person is prioritized and necessary in order for the purpose to be filled in the first place. Mm-hmm. So. I, I feel, you know, before any tools or instructions, you know, are given, it, to, it seems to me that God has, God was seeking to ensure that the person, right, was satisfied, that their needs were met and not, not even just the need for food, but also companionship and partnership. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's this theme of suitability there, right? Not just any partner, right? But one that is satisfactory and sufficient. And so there's this underlying theme of satisfaction, of of nourishment, of needs being met. before any instructions, before any tools are allocated or resources or anything, God is seeking uh, to care for and to satisfy needs. Um, and so that's that's been my approach to self-care, to have that awareness um, of my needs and to ensure that they're being met so that I have the energy to do whatever work or whatever comes next.
1: And then I just want to throw in, because it was a question I was going to ask you too, because we're talking yeah. about all these pandemics, but like self-care is theological. You just said it, you know, God provides moment for Sabbath. He's saying rest, God is saying rest. Right. And then there's this way in which it is so sharply political. And I I wrote it, And I just love this quote of Audre Lorde anyway, but that caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. It is an act of political warfare, Mm. particularly in, again, this crazy 2020 uh, that we're all trying to work through. What do you, Laura, as an African-American faith leader with the racial reckoning, with the, you know, kind of like political upheaval with all that's going on in our society, how you do that in the midst of that too, of, a of this crisis, of the pandemic of like political instability.
4: I hear that quote. And I just think of, of, uh, the history of this country and how it was established, you know, on the exploitation misuse and abuse of human bodies. Right. Um, not even just through slavery, but in examining the narratives of indigenous people um, and laborers in this country, there's a continual theme of subjugation and taking space. Um, and so considering you know, that, that history, you know, I, w- I would agree you know, that, it, that it is a political act to center my own flourishing and thus my existence. Uh, which then fuels resistance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so you know to nurture oneself in a place where you know your life is 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 taken from you, um, and to 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 act in such a way that takes that space back—that sets a boundary that says, you know, I'm I'm going to care for my body, uh, and I will not subject myself to these unjust demands—is mm-hmm. um, truly you know a political act. Mm-hmm. Um, what comes to mind is just our, our culture, uh, our, this grind culture, right? This uh, wanting to be uh, a savage, have no feelings and just get stuff done. And I'm, I'm about my bag and my business and, you know, just what what we're prioritizing. I, I just wonder, perhaps that's, you know, not working for us very well. Um, <laughs> right. And considering like these, this mindset, this framework um, that seems to imply a, a scarcity that hoards energy and that hoards resources, that hoards time, you know, that takes from people this this manifest destiny mindset, mm-hmm. right, that seeks to expand in a way, um, that seeks to exist in a way that subjugates. I mean, self-care in, in this kind of space is, is radical.
2: We'll give Reverend Edie the final word. We asked her... Where do you see God in this moment?
3: Just in, in the little things, right? So obviously, we—I—I I, I know God is present, right? But in, in the little things, in the in the fact that there's still a seven year old who um, who can still say something to remind me that there are still reasons for me to smile, right? Mm. Who who's like, remember Reverend Jamie? um, the the sun is really bright today. This mm-hmm. a little simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The sun did come out today. So, you know, when I say, Oh, it was dark today, but the sun did come out. Oh, this, you're right. The sun did come out. Right. And that sentence alone, how the rest of my day, when something happens, I can hear her voice say, but the sun did come out. Right. Mm. That's God. Um, how I know I have entered into spaces with COVID positive patients Um, and and I am on a podcast with you, but not just that, that their families couldn't be there, Hmm. but I was there for them. Like that's God. God is like, okay, you can't be there, but I got somebody for you. Yeah, I got somebody that can be there for you. She's there. She, your mom's not alone. Cause, mm. cause, 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 Some people may not believe in God the way you believe in God. Where God says, "I'm not gonna leave you," and I to "Like you're not gonna be like." Some people don't believe the, the same way you believe, right? So, my mom is alone. Oh, but my mom is not alone because I saw somebody with my mom. So the whole concept of mm. your mom's not alone because God is with her. Well, I can't really see God. But my mom is not alone because I saw that, that black woman chaplain. Mm. She FaceTimed me from the room.
1: Right. Right. Right.
3: So, so for me, those little moments, they saw God in that. Just a word to our listeners.
1: You are in the trenches and we know you are. We are grateful for your ministry As our socio-political climate intensifies, we see you. As people grieve and you minister to them with your presence, with your listening, we hear you. As COVID continues to impact communities, as you rewrite patterns of sacramental practice and create new rituals, we see you.
2: So take care. And when we say take care, we mean more than a massage. Receive care. Be held by another person's act of care in listening to you. Allow yourself to be held by another person's love. Because before all else, you are a beloved child of God.
1: Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Rev. Jamie Eady or Dr. J and her healing ministry at www.jfrederica.com. That's J F R E D. E-R-I-K-A dot com. Laura Fairchild's website and more about her spiritual direction ministry can be found at mslfairchild.com. And of course, you can learn more about the Reverend Dr. Bo Karen Lee and Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.